And welcome to episode 6 of SCP-3, our third season of podcasts. This week, we invite writer and satirist Maddox onto the show. He speaks to us about his latest book, Fuck Wales, and some of the difficulties he encountered in putting it together. He also gives some interesting insight on the nature of criticism, as well as his upcoming video game, For transcripts and some further commentary on this episode, go over to secretcave.co forward slash Maddox. As huge fans of his work, we're honoured he spared some of his time for Secret Cave, so let's just go ahead and leap into the conversation. How's it going today anyway? It sounds like you've been burning the midnight oil a little bit. Oh man, it's been just a crazy... I'm so uh, spread thin right now. Just um, worked really late last night, came home... Uh, woke up early, continued working. So that's been, that's pretty much been my life for the last like two, two, three years now. Yeah, yeah. When I, I was trying to calculate the time difference and that, I was like, it seems like he's been up all night and like just working yep. on a script or something. Yep, pretty much. I um, fell asleep watching uh, some YouTube stuff I had to watch last night, and then um, woke up at I think at like three a.m. Kept working, sent off some emails, then went to sleep for an hour, woke up again, and then finished the script. And here we are doing the uh, the conference, though. So. Right, well, as I say, thanks for that, man. Thanks for giving up the time, especially knowing how busy you are. Sure. Um, is this script that you've been working on something you can talk about at all, or I don't want to reveal something that's still in the works? Not in detail, unfortunately, because it's still unannounced. It's it's for my animated project. I can say that much. Oh, uh, right. Okay. Yeah. It's it's. I announced it on my podcast a while back that I was working on an animated show, and it's my very own show. It's the first one I've done that's completely based on me and my properties. So, um, it is. Uh, it's it's going to be a lot of fun. I'm really proud of this one. And is that, like, going to be a full, like, half an hour thing, even if it's on YouTube or whatever? Yeah, it's going to be nine episodes, and each episode is 22 minutes long. So it's a full uh, season worth of content. Dude, that sounds pretty awesome. And also, I I watched the latest podcast episode where you talked about how you've, well, you revealed you've been working on this video game as well. So, like, since we're talking about upcoming things, I was really intrigued to bring that up. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, that was something that I, I just mentioned. In fact, it was something I was supposed to work on this morning, uh, but uh, it just didn't work out with scheduling with the developers because we all have to coordinate. Um, the developers I'm working with are in the Netherlands. So between the video game, the podcast, uh, the book stuff that's just wrapped, um, and the, the animated show, there's a, just a lot going on. And I tried to coordinate that every week. I think th- usually Thursday mornings I tried to do video game stuff, working with my team in the Netherlands. And then every day I work on the animated show and then the podcast on the weekends. And then whenever I can, I try to do live streams or YouTube. I mean, your announcement of when you brought out that, uh, or the announcement of the video game was like really exciting to me because I've been a fan for a while. And obviously I know what a fan of video games you are, but it's not something I ever would have imagined coming out. Um, I guess I'm interested in how that all came together, how long that idea has been in your head. 
Well, I've had ideas for video games for a long, long time, and this is something I've been wanting to do for over, uh, actually, my whole life, pretty much, since I first started playing video games. In fact, that's the whole reason I touched computers to begin with, is to learn how to develop video games. And now it's finally come full circle, where I went into writing, and then, you know, did some TV stuff, and YouTube, and all this other, you know, animation, and I finally come to my first passion, which is video games. And uh, the way that it came about was um, this developer who's a big fan of mine reached out to me and asked me if I wanted to work on a video game. And they seemed like a legit company. And, uh, you know, I've had a lot of people come and make offers and things in the past, but um, they, they weren't they were more independent people. And I didn't want to half ass it. Um, a video game is a huge undertaking because there's so many components, so many moving parts. You really have to have. Uh, focus and dedication to see the project through. You can't, you can't have um, the initial enthusiasm of starting a project and then hope that that sustains throughout the entire endeavor because it just won't. Um, the initial enthusiasm is not enough. You have to have people who know how to see a vision through and know how to manage assets and time and resources and those sort of things. So this company you seemed legitimate. We went ahead and I pitched them four or five different ideas, and we went with the one that uh, they liked best. That's awesome, and like, I don't know, I don't want to poke too much into ideas that like you're going to be revealing more about as the future comes along. But personally, I, I, I'm imagining some kind of RPG because you haven't revealed any kind of genre or anything yet. I don't think. <laughs> right. It's not. Uh, I can say it's not going to be an RPG, um, but it is going to be. It's something that. Um, I've, it's, a, it's a type of game that I've wanted to play for a long, long time. In fact, it's a type of game I like playing. Uh, I'll give that much of a hint. And it is something I haven't really seen in this type of genre of game before. And uh, it, should, it should be really interesting to see this, um, you know, how this innovation plays out in the, in the, in the genre. Um, it's, a, it's a lot of fun. We already have a playable demo of the game. And, you know, the game is not very, very early in this stage, but the basic gameplay mechanics are there. And even without very many enemies and even without very much AI, it is still a lot of fun to play. And that's a really good sign. I'm, I'm having fun just exploring the level that we have created uh, early on at this stage of development. So that bodes well for the game itself, because if you're having fun just you know, fucking around in a demo stage, then you're going to really enjoy the game, I think. Mm. And and how much, because uh, you've mentioned that the animated series jumps off from your properties so far and, and, and the Maddox world you've built up, um, how much does this video game, like, sit in that world? Or is it just a completely unique idea? It's, um, it pays homage to the, to the Maddox universe, um, but it's it's going to be its a, its own distinct thing. Like everything I do has some element of something else I've done. Uh, you know, some something else from the Maddox universe. Like uh, like for example, um, my my second book, I Am Better Than Your Kids, came was you know inspired by that piece that I wrote called I Am Better Than Your Kids, where I graded children's artwork. So I included one of the pieces from my website, the famous one where I graded the the Harry fire truck. And use that as a launching point to make an entire book based on art critique, you know, criticizing children's artwork. Mm -hmm. um, and same thing with Alphabet of Manliness. Alphabet of Manliness was inspired by an article I wrote called A Tribute to Real Men. 
And uh, so this video game is also going to be inspired actually just by Maddox, the, the, the persona himself. Um, so that and then some of the lore uh, that I've created for Maddox himself. It's, it's going to be a lot of fun. I, I can't wait to show you. Like, it's going to melt faces. It's going to be so fucking <laughs> awesome. Yeah, personally, I, I was super excited for that. Like, it was just today I was listening to that podcast because I think it was only released in the past couple of days, that podcast. Correct, yeah. And I was like, man, uh, that I'd never expected it, but it's quite exciting, actually. So what yeah, man, of, it's uh, yeah, it's super exciting. Uh, but yeah, what kind of uh, platform we're talking here? Is it going to be like Steam or just purely online or something like that? Well, we're looking to develop uh, at Steam on Steam currently, and then if we get enough funds or find uh, investors or distribution, we may look at doing a console release as well. Right. Okay. Cool. Well, I certainly hope all that comes together. So. Yeah, man, this game. I, I'm looking to make it so that it's playable. Um, multiple playthroughs. So each time you play through, you'll be able to discover new things and uh, continue to make progress in your character and that sort of thing. It's, uh, I mean, it's <clears throat> as a long-time game gamer, my my entire life, I'm a lifelong gamer. I have a lot of experience playing games. I have a lot of experience analyzing game design. And this is actually not the first game I've worked on. I also wrote for a game... Um, called Starblood Arena that came out on PlayStation 4. It's a virtual reality game, and that uh, that recently came out. So that's that's the first time I've actually had any experience uh, writing for a video game. All oh, right, cool. I didn't actually know that. I'm, I'm out of the whole VR world, to be honest. I've not gotten into that yet. Yeah. Uh, yeah, but... I haven't really made made a big announcement about that, but uh, that's, some, that's another project I worked on. No, that, that's cool. Um, and I was going to ask as well, like, being a lifelong gamer, you must have played your fair share of, like, of shitty licensed games that you know uh, only go half-assed with the whole fucking thing and like I'm, I'm sure that your gaming experiences have informed it every step of the way yes absolutely i know like I, I when i play video games i like to think about what it is that makes the game fun and what it is that makes the game work and there's something consistent with every game that i really find addictive and every game that i really like to play and that is um, character development. So if you look at the classic Metroid games, especially the ones that came out later on the DS, um, they have this very simple formula, which is they start you out as strong as possible, um, essentially. They show you a preview of what's to come. They show you how the character is going to play with all the advanced weaponry and shields and all the neat gadgets and gizmos. Then they take it all away. And you have to build your character back up to get to that point. So you, ha so you have a taste of what's to come, but uh, you have to discover all those different pieces. And it's a formula that uh, developers have used in many different types of video games. Like Metroid is, is one example. Mega Man X is another example mm -hmm. uh, where you have to upgrade your character as you go along. And each upgrade gives your character new abilities. And with those abilities, if, you, in, if that ability informs the design of the level uh, that you're in, that's really satisfying to the gamer. Because if you learn, for example, in Mega Man X, um, if you gain the ability to do a wall slide or a wall jump, they will create a level that takes advantage of that mechanism, that gameplay mechanic. So um, I pay attention to details like that. <clears throat> and I, I pay attention to gameplay design, and uh, I think Capcom does some really, really smart gameplay design, especially when it comes to the Mega Man games. Because they will, rather than forcing you to, to play through a tutorial stage, 
they will give you an obstacle that is impossible to overcome until you learn the the uh, gameplay mechanic that they want to teach you. Mm-hmm. That's, I think, a very satisfying and organic way to teach players how to play a game rather than forcing them to sit through a boring tutorial stage that doesn't really affect the rest of the game. Yeah, I mean, so much of video games is just purely hand-holding and you just end up waiting for it to eventually give you the freedom, which it never does. <clears throat> right. I hated the Uncharted series for that reason. Uh, I never got into it because I couldn't get past the tutorial stage and how boring it was. Um, right. Especially Uncharted 2. I think that was the one where you're hanging off a cliff and there's a, a you know, a, it looks very exciting, but it's completely unplayable. You can't kill your character. You can't kill yourself. There's nothing you can do in that stage except press the button prompts when they want you to. Yeah, that's really interesting, actually, because um, now you mention it, I have gone out of my way in certain modern games to to try to die, and it is ridiculously hard in some cases. Yeah. Like, so mollycoddled. What was that last part? Um, oh, like, yeah. You're so oh, mollycoddled yeah, okay. for the whole an expression thing. I wasn't familiar with. <laughs> yeah, I guess that's the Britishness <laughs> kind of thing. Yeah, yeah. Like, out of intrigue, like, have you ever even come over here much? Just out of interest? I have absolutely. Um, I've been to I've been to London twice, and uh, I have a funny story. I flew to France one time. Uh, I was in Paris, and I was flying back, and there was a layover. Uh, they canceled all the flights in Paris because there was a little bit of sleet on the ground, <laughs> and so you know the French they're just uh, <laughs> they panicked, and so they canceled <laughs> every flight. <laughs> so so I ended up having to sleep on a conveyor belt in the airport, and the next morning. It was complete chaos. Uh, everybody was screaming and crying and shouting and yelling, trying to get the next flight out of the, the country because all the flights were canceled. Well, I just I just paid attention to the overhead announcements, and I heard that you could either stand in line or dial this number and, and book your next flight out. So I decided, well, I'm going to dial this number. Yeah. I immediately got an agent on the phone, and she said, where are you headed? I said, uh, London. And she said, London City? I said, yes. And so she booked me a flight, and being a London, uh, being being a uh, being a native, you may know where the story is going. But I landed in London City, and I'm walking around looking for my connecting flight, which is United to America, and uh, I couldn't find it anywhere in the gate in the gates. And finally, I asked an attendant. I said, "Where is United in this airport?" They said, "There is no United in this airport." Uh, where do you think you are? I said, "London Heathrow." They said, "No, you're in London City." Which is the first time I realized it's a different airport than London Heathrow. Right, uh, yeah. I think there's like three in London. Yeah, well, I flew to the wrong one. And I had three hours to make my connecting flight. So I ran outside, hopped in a cab, and asked. I, I told the guy um, what my situation was. And he drove like a bat out of hell. And it was like a whirlwind tour of London. I'd seen the London Eye and Big Ben and, and Parliament and everything like that. However... It was uh, a lot of fun to see that again on a very fast ride back to the airport. And I finally made the connecting flight uh, just in time. It was like a movie. I ran up to the gate as they were shutting the door. Yeah, it was amazing. Really good time. I've had a great, great experience in London. Every time I've gone, the pubs uh, the pubs are in- incredible. I always make friends. Um, the food is good. I love the Cornish pasties. Um, <laughs> yeah, I have a good time. That's I'm just amazed how you made that kind of a reference. That's all Cornish pasties. That is a very <laughs> British thing. So yeah, <laughs> yeah, it was my favorite thing. It was actually my saving grace when I came to London. This was the uh, this was the period of my life where I had uh, sworn off of wearing jackets, <laughs> and and I and this was the trip that broke me. 
Um, I was, I'd had a four, I think three or four year streak where I didn't wear any jackets and I packed my trip to London. I packed zero jackets and only one long sleeve shirt. Mm. And, uh, and this is winter. And so I'm walking around and I, I immediately regretted that decision as soon as I landed because it was so bitter cold. And I would walk from convenience store to convenience store buying these uh, Cornish pasties because they were warm and they kept my hands warm. Um, and eventually, I was walking across a bridge by the, um, uh, it's by the London Eye, I forget the stop, but uh, the wind was blowing so hard, and I was so cold, I finally broke down, and I, fi- I saw this little Chinese lady who was about to pack up shop, and she was selling um, gloves and scarves and, and hats and everything. I bought everything she had <laughs> right on the spot. I didn't even care about haggling for the price. I gave her anything she asked for. I just bought it and made her night. I bought everything. <laughs> oh, yeah, man. It can get absolutely vicious over here. And she probably definitely yeah. ripped you off as well. I, I'm sure I'm sure she did, but yeah. I didn't care. It was so worth it. I mean, I don't know how much of a stupid question this is because I'm sure that you do, but do you have like much of a British fan base that you find yourself coming into touch with? Yes. Um, in, in fact, my developer, who I work with on my website, madcastmedia.com, is uh, is British, and he lives out there. And um, you know, he's he's a fan and a friend and uh, a great, great colleague. Somebody I highly recommend if you ever need any kind of web development, any kind of projects like that. Um, and I do have a, a fairly significant fan base out there, and uh, I love my British fans because occasionally I will post something on Facebook. A reference that only uh, British people might get, and I will target it to British people, and I will look at the comments, and they're so much more polite, <laughs> so much more decent than the rest of the internet. I just, I absolutely love it. I adore my British fans. Yeah, because um, to be honest, I listen to a lot of call-ins to your podcast, and I, I, yeah, I can't imagine us saying certain things like that, like outright, like "fuck you, man," you didn't, you didn't put an S on the end of that word. <laughs> Yeah, that was a call that I just got last week. And some some of my callers called in to uh, call me out because I said, uh, oh, was that wrong? Oh, I said runner up instead of runners up. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I, don't, I don't even know why it's worth the time, but then again. You know, because here's the thing. My, my fans try to extrapolate a little bit too much from what I do and say. Um, so, for example, if I'm pedantic occasionally, which I am sometimes, it's for a purpose, and usually that purpose is somebody has called me out, somebody has said that I am dumb or stupid, and they have they have insulted my intelligence, right? Yeah. Well, if you're going to insult somebody's intelligence, you have to take extra care to make sure that you yourself have not made any stupid and simple mistakes. Absolutely. So that's, that's the, the occasion that I try to be pedantic because it's funny that way. But my fans interpret it as me trying to be pedantic all the time. And so that's why if I make a, even a minor mistake, even it, without without being in the process of insulting somebody, they will go out of their way to point that out to me. And I can imagine that uh, with fans with that kind of attitude, that you get you get picked up a lot on a lot of things throughout the years. Like, hey, you've said this, but then you've said this three years later, you goddamn asshole. And like, yes, I, 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 it was just the the, the whole anger of some of your fans really takes me aback sometimes but i know you go out of your way to like only show negative criticism correct yeah and like like what are the reasons behind that because it's fun um it's not interesting to hear a bunch of people call in and 
agree with me and um, just tell me they're big fans. I have a lot of fans. I have a lot of people who love what I do. I have a lot of people who love what I have to say and they agree with me. But what would you rather listen to? Um, two people having a polite agreement or two people having an angry disagreement? Yeah. <laughs> um, so when somebody disagrees with me, especially if they're wrong, which they are if they're disagreeing with me, then it gives me an opportunity <laughs> to shut them down. Right. Uh, and fuck people who agree with you, right? <laughs> so it sounds like you read my book. Yeah, of course, I, which was kind of like a heavy-handed transition into talking about it a little bit. Well, nicely done. Yes, that is a chapter from my book um, titled Fuck People Who Agree With You. Yes, it is. And um, I, I'm going to come back to that later on because there, there is something I'm going to bring up that I don't agree with you on. But before we get to that, I did just want to like, right. get the conversation of um, how Fuck Wales has been going down. How happy are you with its reception since it's come out? I am absolutely thrilled. People who have read the book love it. Um, my longtime fans especially. This was a book that uh, I, I think I've mentioned I, maybe on the podcast, but I, it's the book I wanted to write as my first book. Um, I wrote The Alphabet of Manliness because I knew it would be a commercial success. Um, not just that, you know, it was still based on my, my previous work, as I mentioned, the, uh, the tribute to real men. But this is a real Maddox book. This is my bread and butter. This is like, this is the book that I wrote for the purpose of, uh, you know, for, like, like to fulfill the Maddox mission, which is rants and satire and essays. Uh, it's a very authentic Maddox read. So the people who've read it absolutely love it. I am absolutely thrilled with how the book has turned out. Everything from the production values, the the the, um, the cover, the, the jacket, the flap. Um, but I know it has taken um, some time to come to fruition, and I don't know the full story behind it, but I've, I've heard something about somebody like uh, registering a domain with the original title and things like that. Um, what was going on there? Well, the title for this book was never settled uh, until very late into the uh, development, the writing of this book. Um, in fact, sometimes the title of a book is the last thing that is decided upon. Um, this book in particular went through over 30 different covers and 30 different in, uh, titles and um, iterations. And I have covers that I, I personally created for this book that date back to two years ago. Um, and I, ha I made something like 15 or 16 drafts two years ago. And then we just kept going through over and over again. And then finally, when I finally decided upon this title and this cover, um, it was after nine different iterations of this very title itself. Um, so it's been a long, long process. The, uh, the title wasn't even decided upon until, I would say, about uh, six to eight months before the book was released. And how much did the content within the book itself over the whole period of writing it, like, actually evolve? Or, or did the whole thread of the thing stay nicely solid across the whole thing? Well, that's a good question. So, originally, the first draft I wrote of this book um, was about, I would say, about um, 30 to 50% of the book. When I finished writing the first draft, um, and that's not even the finished book, but, you know, 30, like 50%, maybe about 100 pages. I sent it to my editor for some notes and some thoughts because I didn't really uh, quite have a direction 
I felt like it wasn't very strong direction in the book, and um, and it didn't really have a theme. It didn't have you know it, it wasn't it didn't feel cohesive like it does now, and uh, he felt the same way. You know we don't have any pretense about uh, what what the work is. If it's not there, it's not there. So I went back to the drawing board and rewrote it, rewrote big parts of it, and incorporated what I had already written, which was very poignant and thoughtful. There are two types of writing that you find in this book generally, which is, well, three, which is um, you get some funny essays and satire, you have some absurd essays and satire, and then you also have some very thoughtful and poignant ones. Like, for example, Fuck Abstractions is one of my favorite chapters in the book. It's something where I started out someplace where I talk about how people like to make abstract uh, they try to take specific problems and make them abstract, uh, where that obfuscates the problem and makes it difficult to solve. Uh, and it becomes a very like poignant essay on something like that. And then I incorporated that with other chapters that are things that are more absurd, like fuck horses, fuck ants, um, you know, fuck tables, mm. fuck trees, like th that sort of thing. So it became a nice balance, a nice mix of thoughtful and poignant essays plus funny and uh, uh, satirical ones. Uh, and that's exactly the Maddox brand. That is exactly on point with what I tried to do. I tried to write about two-thirds of the stuff that I, that I write has to have a message in it. And then about a third of it has to have some humor. Um, and that combination, that formula, is what I've generally tried to have in my writing all throughout my writing. Um, sometimes some of the essays and things that I write, even on my website, they aren't funny because they're not meant to be. They're just supposed to be thoughtful and important. Uh, you know, uh, thoughtful essays and thoughtful criticism, uh, which I think still stands the test of time as long as it's written well. Mm, absolutely. I, I, I was going to ask about that, about how conscious the different styles of writing within the book itself are. Um, and obviously they are very conscious. So, Because um, that does come across that you will read Fuck Ants and it's hilarious and you could easily, like... I'm sure that could be converted into one of your YouTube video type things. But then there are other things that really do deserve to be sat and read and uh, and and digested. And and I just wanted to say that as a fan, that it has certainly satisfied on that on that front. Thank you, thank you. Yeah, that's a, that's absolutely been my goal. Like for I can tell you right now, there's a chapter in the book called "Fuck Raising Awareness," and it, it, again, it's one of my favorite chapters in the book. It's very poignant. It's very uh, thoughtful, but it's not funny. Um, and it's not meant to be funny. It wasn't written to be a funny essay. And uh, there are essays like that on my website. There are essays like that in the book. There, but you know, it's a good balance. A good, it's a good balance. And I think that the the comedy, the humor, is the sugar that I give people with the medicine. And that's what makes my writing, I think, uh, palatable and enjoyable for a lot of people. Uh, what do you actually feel more comfortable uh, with uh, when you're writing? Do you do you feel more comfortable um, being more straight-faced and attacking a problem seriously or being just the more comedy persona and, and having fun with the whole thing? Which comes more naturally? Both. Sorry to Oh, I see. Oh, no problem. Yeah. Uh, which comes more naturally? I'm comfortable with both. Um, but if I had to tell you for this specific book, the first draft was mostly the poignant and thoughtful essays. And that's why I felt like it wasn't really coming together. And um, it wasn't until I went back to the drawing board and decided and realized like the missing ingredient was the humor. I, I didn't really have that in there. Mm. Uh, that's when the book started to take shape. And in the, um, in the acknowledgement section of the book, I thanked two of my friends, 
early on because I was brainstorming with them and telling them about the problem I, I was having, the trouble I was having writing this book. It was a very difficult book to write. And it was, and in brainstorming with my friends, they told me what they believed the Maddox brand to be about. And it made me come to an epiphany where I realized, okay, well, clearly there is a theme in this book, and the theme is fuck everything. <laughs> and so that became that became the, the book. Except fuck everything was a title, actually, we, we played around with. And I have several iterations. Like I said earlier, I have several different covers, literally, that, that are drafted for this book called Fuck Everything. Um, and that was another another uh, different title that we considered right until the very end, until we decided to just go with Fuck Wales, because it was uh, one of the essays that everybody seemed to like and th- think it was funny from the book. Right, um, yeah, I was just about to ask why in the end then did you go with Wales, but I, I guess that answers that one. Um, but you talked about, interestingly, about how these people perceived what the Maddox brand was to them. And um, for, for me, I wanted to say that there was a... I, I always get a sense of responsibility to calling out bullshit. I don't know if that's a part of it for you. Oh, absolutely, yes. Yeah, and of, of like undercutting a, a kind of hypocrisy that's, that seems to be widespread around the world at the moment. Right. Um, I, I don't know. I, I don't know. Over, over time, I don't know if I'm becoming more pessimistic or optimistic. I'm not even sure. Um, I used to be very bright-eyed and optimistic about the future of the Internet, uh, especially with in terms of expressing oneself. I used to think that everybody should express themselves, and now I, I, I firmly believe that that was a mistake. Uh, <laughs> yeah. So it goes back to what you were saying, that sometimes people call me out for hypocrisy, which is true. Sometimes I am a hypocrite, um, but hypocrisy isn't an end in and of itself. Uh, if you want to make an argument, for example, that somebody is a hypocrite, great. All you've proven is that their values are not consistent sometimes. Like their own belief system is not consistent sometimes. Or all you've proven is that they've changed their minds. And that's totally okay and that's totally natural. People are allowed to change their minds. And they're allowed to, And in, in fact, I would encourage people to change their points of view and then change their minds based on new knowledge and new information. If you b- have a set of beliefs and you realize along the way, along the course of your life, that um, you you come across some facts that disprove your beliefs. You absolutely should change your mind. And one such instance is it's with my belief that everybody should ex- express themselves, especially on social media. I I am firmly against that belief now. Um, it's a mistake. The experiment didn't work. We need to uh, abort that mission and <laughs> make yeah. it more difficult for people to express themselves, not easier. Well, you talk about in the book um, about how uh, everyone's writing now, uh, just like blog posts off the cuff, writing things, and and that there's almost been a degradation of proper writing with research, and that you was very interested in the strength of communication and all of that stuff, and and it is that kind of thing that is dying, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um... It's writing. Writing is a skill, and just because everybody can type doesn't mean everybody can write. And uh, it's a it's a very important distinction. Everybody can take a pair of scissors and cut hair, right? But that mm. doesn't make everybody a barber. You have to have training. You have to have some skill. You have to have some experience and know how to be a good barber. 
you can't just cut hair. I mean, yes, you can, right? It doesn't take very much skill to pick up scissors and then press them together so the shears move. Any idiot can do that. But writing is the same way. Just because you can type doesn't mean you can write. And that's what we're experiencing today. We are we are uh, bereft of quality content, quality writers, and we are deluged with garbage. And that garbage is being elevated to the height of the New York Times, to the height of, genu- of uh, authentic journalism, and real quality writers. Like, for example, I could write something, <laughs> just blow the sunshine at my own ass, but I could write something on social media, some real quality writing, you know? And mm-hmm. it's it has to compete with every other blog post, every other comment, and every other criticism that everyone else has on the internet, whether or not they have any experience writing beyond uh, the casual status update. Mm. But and it's it's not just with writing; it's in almost like every form of media now. Like, like, like even memes. Like anybody can just throw together a meme and get a shitload of likes on it. Um, and I feel like it's not that that people aren't trying to do good things. It's that there's so much widespread laziness because they they're getting so many likes and shit on Facebook that that people aren't actually like interested in improving what they do. It it has become a part of it. It's also be, it's also the type of um, media. The way that we consume media today is in very small snippets, very small chunks. Everybody has a very short attention span, and you're seeing media change to reflect that. In fact, um, there's one of my favorite YouTubers. He's a he's a brilliant content creator. His name is Brandon Rogers, and his style of content is so frenetic and fast paced and um, you know, kind of almost uh, frenzied. Frenzied is the right word. Mm. And I think it's be- it's like that because it is appealing to a generation of people who came up watching Vine and Instagram stories and Snapchat stories and 10-second clips and scrolling through your news feed and seeing a few, uh, you know, frames of, an, of a video that starts to play that you don't even pay attention to. That's the type of uh, that that's how we are being bred to consume content today. And so if you have an entire generation of people who is ready to consume content that is short form, uh, only lasts a few seconds at most, and isn't really doesn't really have a story arc, what we're going to start seeing a shift in media is that type of content. Even long form content is going to seem like short form content. So Brandon Rogers, he may make a six minute video, but in that six minute video, there is a joke every one to three seconds. And that seems if that seems like a frenetic pace, that's because it is. Every one to three seconds, there's a joke in, in, his, uh, in his direction style, either his directing or the dialogue or the visuals or something. And mm. I think it's like that because we have come to expect that style of content. It's very difficult for people with a short attention span these days, and I may be guilty of this myself, of sitting down and consuming an entire movie, a long-form movie from start to finish, without checking their phone, without getting interrupted, without getting some notification from something. I mean, between the number of apps we have on our phones and the number of times our computers chime off, and we have now Google Home and uh, Amazon, uh, what, what is it, Alexa, and all these things constantly chirping and bugging us and smart TVs and tablets, we are deluged with information and distractions. It's really hard for people to concentrate. So how much did that actually concern you when you were writing what is essentially quite a long book and preparing to release that? 
Right. Well, that's a good question. First of all, the chapters are a little bit shorter than I than a, I think a traditional book. Some some of the chapters are are about what you would expect, but a few of the chapters are only a page or two long. Um, that wasn't intentional necessarily, but the difficulty in writing a book in this day and age, uh, I mean, so much has changed since my first book came out. My first book came out 11 years ago. Uh, that's an entire generation. You know, mm. think of the think of the difference between the 70s and the 80s. Think of the difference between the 50s and the 60s. That's an entire generation has has changed since a book since my uh, first book came out. And even even uh, you know the, the book the book industry itself has changed even since my second book came out in 2011. In what six years now, it's still changed that much. And now today, the difficulty of writing a book today is that people generally don't buy books as much as they used to when's the last time you stepped inside a bookstore no it's, it's very true i mean i'm gonna hold my hand up and say i haven't bought a book in a long time and, and fuck wales is the first time i've gone cover to cover on something in a long time oh thank you for reading it uh, cover to cover um yeah it's it's um it's becoming more and more rare unfortunately people don't have the attention span for books people don't go to bookstores barnes and noble you know, is the biggest bookseller in in the United States. And you know, when my first book came out, there were many, many bookstores. Uh, Borders was the other big one, and everybody would go to Borders and consume content and buy DVDs and CDs and physical books. And that's how people spend their time. Well, today there are so many distractions, like I said, uh, between apps and games and videos and everything on demand, that it's becoming more and more difficult to sell books. Books. Just like movies and just like TV, uh, everything has a smaller share of your time today. So it's more difficult to sell books. It's more difficult for people to consume books. And uh, I think that's to the detriment of society. Yeah, I, I agree with you. And uh, it's that that results in, in the explosion of audiobooks that we've had recently, which I did want to talk about quickly because I did um, at one point I listened to about half of the book on audiobook because of other things I had to do. And then it is you reading it. So I was intrigued about how you felt about it in that format and, you know, having to perform it almost. Well, um, I'm actually more curious to, to hear what you thought about the audiobook because I obviously recorded it. And my recording session for that book, I think, was 16 hours um, even though the final product was what around five, six hours total. Yeah, yeah. Um, it it was about that long, right? Five and a half, I think, if I remember right. Five and a half, right? That sounds about right. And what because I recorded it and I wrote it, um, I don't have enough perspective, so I don't know. I don't know what what did you think of the audiobook? Well, personally, I, I enjoyed it, and I and I felt like not only were you able getting across the tones of what you were saying, but it because you were reading it, it felt so very much like you, like one of your videos. Like, in particular, on one of the more jokey chapters, it, it could have sounded like, as I say, just add some of that guitar music behind it, and it's very close to becoming one of your videos. But other times, you are just getting down to it and reading it, and there was at no point that I was, uh, I don't know, kind of switched off or whatever, if that's what you mean. Oh, that's good to, that's good to hear. That, that was absolutely my goal. Um, my goal with the book is was trying to read it and change my cadence enough and change the tone and pace and, and try to really um, encapsulate what I'm reading so that it didn't become boring to listen to. 
and in fact, even even on this very podcast itself, itself, the one we're recording right now, I try to be conscious of how much I talk, and I try not right. to drone on to the point where it becomes boring. And if I find myself tuning out of something I'm saying, I, I try to imagine the listener at home, or even you on the other end, tuning out as well, and thinking, okay, that's a time to stop and then maybe change things up. Right. I mean, I mean, since since you've brought it up, it's worth saying that because I do try to do all my research, I did. I, I found some criticism towards the audio book, but I found it harsh myself. Well, there's a there's a problem right now with the ratings and reviews for the book. It's being spammed, unfortunately, by a lot of trolls. Uh, you know, people you see, that's are, the tone are... that I got. To be honest, was that it was very yeah. trolly rather than an actual review. Right now, here's the thing. I I want there to be authentic reviews of my book, and that's even if the reviews are bad or harsh. I don't care. All I care about is that they are authentic. If somebody read my book and didn't like it, God bless. Good for you, but I still want to hear your criticism of the book as long as it's genuine, authentic criticism. I What I don't care for is people who are just trying to diminish and tarnish a book's brand or a book's reputation based on uh, something external. Um, that's that's unfair. That's not right. And that's not helpful to anybody. You're not making the world a better mm. place by writing a shitty review for a product you haven't read or experienced. Um, it, you know, I don't, I'm not curious about what the thoughts are of people who haven't watched a TV show. I mean, your, your information, your, your input is uninformed. There's nothing you can add to the conversation. How much of uh, your audience, th- this this fickle side that I've seen, like that I've said that the troll critics, or uh, we had this little thing where I accidentally posted out this image that you said was from a detractor or something like that. Um, that fickleness of your fans, how much do you feel like it's just a vocal um, majority? Because it, it uh, v- vocal minority rather, sorry, because it's something that I've seen. Um, when researching a lot of your work, is a lot of trolls and a lot of detractors and people uh, jumping on your back for for bullshit childish reasons. Um, right, right. And how much is that a vocal minority? Um, people who have got an axe to grind kind of thing. Well, it's it's absolutely a vocal minority, and that's part of the reason why I've <laughs> classically been <laughs> saying things like, my fans are idiots. Um, (laughs) because they are fickle it's exactly what you said they are fickle they're fickle as fuck and that's the thing that drives me nuts about my fan base is that um, you can produce consistent quality content for 20 years without so much as putting a single fucking advertisement on your website not making a single Mm. single dollar and and they will consume your content for free for 20 years and the second that you produce anything they don't like or anything that falls below their very high expectations of you for for the free content they're consuming, they will turn on you immediately. And that's why I don't have that much loyalty to my fans. They are fickle. The, the ones who stick with me, the ones who stick by my side, and the ones who see through it, the ones who don't feel entitled to free entertainment, those are the ones I respect and appreciate. But the ones who turn on you and then become vindictive and manipulative and abusive because you have fallen short of their expectations, which, by the way, should be zero. <laughs> their expectations should be nothing. Nobody owes you shit. 
Nobody owes you entertainment. Nobody owes you, uh, uh, you know, uh, an afternoon of laughs for free. Nobody owes you that. What you are owed is nothing. So if somebody provides something to you, anything to you, and you gain any amount of value from it, the only thing that you should deliver in return is thanks because <laughs> nobody owes it to you. And that's why when my fans, you know, if they if I get trolls, if I get people who are upset uh, at me for, for not delivering something that they wanted, I couldn't give less of a shit. And I am absolutely thrilled to have those people out of my fan base. I cannot wait. And I don't I don't I would not want to do anything to jeopardize bringing them back into my life. That's and that's really refreshing because um, there's so much. I don't even know if this is the right word, but there's so much sycophancy, like in from so many other different sites and so many different platforms that they will do and they will get down on your knees and suck your cock for you to keep well, subscribed. Right, and yeah, it's disgusting. And you know what else I've noticed is sometimes um, there will be different pockets on the internet, like for example, Reddit where I don't know why, but Reddit has almost always hated me. And, right. and, and, and there, there are a few exceptions. Um, if, I, if somebody posts a, a link to uh, an article of mine, um, I'll, I'll look at the comments, and there are a lot of people who are shitting on me, right? right. But if I, ever, if I ever deign to comment in a thread where other people are talking about me, and they realize it's me and I'm there, suddenly the tide shifts very quickly. And it, it changes from one of criticism to one of ass-kissery. Right. So all these people who are critics of mine and people who hated me and people who are my detractors suddenly come around and they become my biggest fans and they're ardent supporters. And you know what I think it all comes down to is the following phenomenon. It is just me-tooism. It's people who want to jump on board. They want to jump on the bandwagon. They want to be a part of something important because most people are not. Most people are not important. Most people are not noteworthy. Uh, most people lead very boring lives. So this is their chance at brushing against celebrity, be it Z-list internet celebrity, but <laughs> it is yeah. some, some form of celebrity. I mean, at this point, I'm, I'm pretty self-deprecating when I talk about my you know, Z-list celebrity, but I have had a, a, you know 20 years of a career. I've hosted a game show. I'm working on a video game. I'm working on an animated show. I got a weekly podcast. I've got a, a very successful YouTube channel. Three books under my belt. Uh, you know, a mountains of merchandise that I've sold. So over the course of twenty years, you know, two decades of, of co producing content, um, there is some stature that comes along with it. And then there are people who want to be close. They want to be adjacent to that stature. And I think it's very exciting to them. And that's why they're fickle. Because when I'm not around, they'll shit talk me. But when I do show show up, suddenly they're my biggest fans. Yeah, the, there's a. I mean, even though we do all have usernames and and shit, there's a certain anonymity to the internet that can be fucking toxic, sometimes. But um, since we've been speaking so much about criticism and we're coming close to the end of the hour, I did mention earlier about like my own criticism. So there's no point leaving that hanging. Um, yeah. The the only debate I wanted to have uh, with you briefly was about whale song. Whale song? You you like whale songs? It's not that I like it, man. I would never sit down and listen to it. I'm with you on that. That's bullshit. <laughs> um, but, like, m my original, like, education and what I did and shit is in music. And uh, when I did a, my dissertation at university, like, um, 
I, I studied music and animals and shit, and like, Whale Song is some impressive shit, man, if you get down to the technicalities of it. And it was just a debate I was intrigued in having with you, especially after reading Fuck People Who Agree With You. <laughs> <laughs> um okay what are you talking about <laughs> well what what have what? you come across have, have you just searched on youtube and thought that's bullshit fuck that yeah well the generally when i hear whale songs you know whales quote singing <laughs> it's been in the in the form of um bumpers for new age music so you'll have some new age music that has some whales moaning. It's, let's not call it singing, okay? Let's drop the pretense of it being singing, because it's not. It's wailing, okay? Whales <laughs> wail. That's what it is. It's about, it, sounds like, it sounds like they're just crying, and it's really long, prolonged cries. Big, big old tears. And that's why the ocean's so fucking salty, because whales are crying into them so much. It's just a bunch of fucking salty whale tears. Yeah, they're oh, moody. So I'll give you that. They're definitely moody. <laughs> yeah, they're very moody. They're very they're the emos of the sea kingdom. Garbage. <laughs> um but no man, you look at the structure of it, like like that is that is music. And not only that, but they've got like accents and shit. They might even they might all be moody, but it, there are accents in there, man. Is that not impressive? Well No, it's not. And you know what? I mean just because it's music doesn't mean it's good music. And that's my criticism of whale songs. It's shitty music. Ah it's ska and Celtic. I hate Celtic music, and I thought I know that's like uh, you know kind of your region of the world, but the, <laughs> I, I don't like reggae, I don't like Celtic, and I don't like ska. There, I put it out there. <laughs> hey, that's okay. I, I didn't I didn't know when ska became British. When was that? It's not. It, <laughs> it's not. But but uh, it's the thing that I uh, you know people people criticize me for. Look, ska is a little bit more tolerable than reggae itself, I, and and reggae has a time and a place. If I'm on a beach with a bowl of uh, uh, chips and salsa and a beer. And uh, I'm, you know, at least two, three beers in, and I'm a little bit tipsy, a little bit bu- getting getting to the point where I'm buzzed. Then I can tolerate reggae. That's the place for it. Right. I still haven't found a place to listen to Celtic music though. And there's no place for um, whale song. That's what you're saying. No whale song. There is a place for a whale song, and that's in the garbage. <laughs> now, um, yeah. If if I'm if I'm blasting into the sun, a whale. <laughs> I'm a lo- I'm okay with them putting speakers on the outside of the rocket ship. So I can hear the whale songs because it sounds, I imagine that's exactly what a whale sounds like inside a rocket ship hurtling towards the sun. Just a bunch of crying. The whale, <laughs> whales are the crybabies of the sea. Well, yeah, now you mention it, it probably would sound exactly the same if they were being launched into the sun. And we wouldn't exactly start singing if we were being launched into the sun. Yeah, I hate it. I hate it so much. Whales, just they sound like they're crying all the time. It's <laughs> <laughs> a fucking whale. Uh, there's a video I have on my YouTube channel. I don't know if you've seen it, but it's uh, the sounds I hate. And uh, I said that whales sound like camels. Uh, you know, a camel's obnoxious, uh, you know, I don't even know what you call it, his, his little groan or whatever, sounds like a whale song. And I, I play a test to see if the audience can pick up the difference between a camel and a whale. And I'm curious to see if you can tell the difference. Uh, watch that video and, and get back to me. I'm curious to see what you think. Uh, I've seen that video, yeah. And uh, okay. <laughs> I do know which one's the stupid fucking whale. Okay. Because <laughs> <laughs> I, I, no, I know what you mean, man. No, I'm not trying to extol the virtues of them like they're... Get down listen to that shit. It's just... I was trying to argue that, mu- that they're musical. I think you agree with that. You're just saying it's shit music. Um, 
yeah, if you want to make the case that it's musical, fine. I mean, I don't know how to argue against that, uh, other than to say it's not. But <laughs> but if you if you want to say it's good music, I absolutely would argue against that. Okay, no, well, I, I don't want to say that. So okay, good. Which because I don't either. <laughs> which makes us able to finish on, fortunately, fuck Wales. Then I guess we at least agree on that. Uh, absolutely, and um, yeah, and and everything else, everything else in the book that I that I said to fuck to. Um, I, I wish I I wish the I wish I had more time to write a few more chapters in the book. There's so much more I wanted to write, uh, but the, it was a long time coming. This was again, you know, it took two years, two about two two and a half years to write this book, uh, and it was uh, a long and arduous process. Um, but I'm glad with the how it turned out. Uh, the publisher originally just wanted to publish an anthology of all my previous writing. Um, and I said, at first we, we tried to compromise, and I said, well, how about 50% new? And they said, no. Uh, I, I said, you know what, fuck it. Let's just do all new material. And that's why it took so long to write. Um, so, yeah. There it is. Well, that's cool, man. I mean, I, I enjoyed it, and... Uh, frankly, I look forward to another one, but in the meantime, we've got fucking video game, animated series. I'm just glad you're busy. Yeah, lots more to come, lots more down the pipes, um, and the weekly podcast is, is always coming, is always ongoing. Uh, so, yeah, uh, stay tuned. A lot of big announcements coming soon. Thank you for listening to this episode, and don't forget to go over to maddox.xmission.com for more of his work. You can also visit secretcave.co forward slash Maddox for transcripts of this conversation and some extra commentary from myself. We'll be back next week with another more casual episode, this time featuring my father, whose past appearances you can find in old seasons. Until then, please give this show a like or our channel a subscribe if you've enjoyed this episode. As I've said before, it's the only way we know you're out there. Thank you again for your time, and also to Maddox for being up for this podcast. Bye for now.